But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for the letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, man or woman, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be, you will be told what you are to do. The men who were, the, who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by, to, led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there, were, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who, who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all, all who heard from him, and all heard, I'm sorry, and all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who call upon this name? And has he not come here to, for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who believe in the who lived in Damascus by, by proving that Jesus is the Christ. Many many days had passed, and the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the, on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among, the, among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, 
uh, but they were seeking to kill him. And when he, uh, the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him, sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good morning again. Are we doing all right? Um, you're probably wondering, what the heck is Josiah doing? Singing and then preaching? Um, that's because Ryan's a tyrant, I told you. Thank you, Lisa. Just joking. Um, in actuality, uh, we, uh, as you know, ministers of his church, leaders of his church, we value and we will put a strong emphasis on leadership, not just being in front of you, um, but among you and with you. And so uh, we give each other a week off here, uh, here and there. And so Ryan could just come and sit and receive this morning. Um, next week's my week off. And so, uh, um, and I'll be uh, with you guys and just singing. And, and uh, I really look forward to that. And so um, this morning, we are looking at one of the most paramount uh, events in the book of Acts, Saul's conversion. And uh, Luke saw fit, it was so important, Luke saw fit to document it three different times in the book of Acts. So here in the chapter we just read, um, but then also in chapter 22 and chapter 26. So I invite you, if you have a Bible, to go to chapter 26, verses 12 through 18. We're going to reference that and just kind of bookmark that, hold on to it, and it'll be helpful for you. I also want to preface um, that I don't have sermon slides this morning. I apologize. I, um, and I'm, I don't mean to make light of that. I um, I really am sorry because uh, I know that's helpful, and so uh, just wasn't able to get them done. So forgive me on that. But if we can all kind of zero in and pay attention this morning, hopefully we'll make this clear. And and I believe God has a good work to do in in all of our lives uh, this morning through His Word. So this morning, the main thing that I want us to understand uh, today, as we see in this passage, is that God's calling, his choosing, his drawing, his salvation, all of these things he's sovereign over. He's sovereign over these things. In biblical terms, it's God's election of his people, those he has chosen to call to himself and to save them, to change them, to give them a new life. And I want us to see both the the call of God this morning and the effects of God's call this morning as we look at what happened to Saul here in the passage. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. I commend you for being here. I believe it's not easy to step into a place like this, um, but I am so happy that you are here. For all of us, I want us to see God's mighty hand and electing and saving his people. To hear his authoritative voice and calling his people to himself. And to see how this plays out in all of our lives. So setting the stage here for this chapter, let's answer first the question, who is Saul? Saul is Paul, the Apostle Paul. Some argue the greatest missionary of all time. He is the author of the letters to the Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Titus to Timothy, right? The majority of all of the New Testament. This is the Apostle Paul. 
is also the guy in chapter 8 that we read about two weeks ago who was there when Stephen was being stoned and he um, approved of this execution. So what happened here? And we read this morning this, this, this big shift in this guy's life, right? But um, one thing to note, that, that Saul's uh, name did not change to Paul, okay? So Paul is the Greek translation for the Hebrew name Saul. Same person. For context today, uh, we'll use his Hebrew name because that's what Luke writes in. And one other thing I want to just preface with to kind of set this sermon up is this, that while I believe that this encounter is in general uh, atypical to um, physically how God saves people, right? This isn't just a, um, a play-by-play of how God would, would save someone, right? Meaning that you probably, if you indeed are a Christian, have put your hope and faith in Christ, did not have a blinding light, audible voice type experience with Christ, Right? So this is atypical in nature. Um, however, um, it is certainly applicable to our lives, to all believers' lives, and how God works in our hearts and spiritually um, to draw us to himself in order to save us <clears throat> from our sin and ourselves. The first important thing to understand about this story is this, that God uh, chose Saul. Saul did not choose God. Saul did not choose God. God chose Saul. And that, that's, I believe, um, uh, inexplicable. You can't deny it that uh, here in the passage that this man was walking along the road and God showed up, right? Say, he's a chosen instrument of mine. Luke, um, consider Saul's state of mind. When Luke writes about him, he's mentioned three times thus far up until this point. End of chapter 7, the beginning of chapter 8. And all three of the times he is referred to as an opponent of Jesus in his church. So Stephen, um, when he was being executed, there were witnesses that came and laid their clothes down before Saul. Almost like a, kind of like a, I don't even know what that signifies, but maybe a trophy, you know, to him. He was there standing, um, approving of what was being done. Condoning it, saying good And then in chapter 8, verse 3, we read that Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. So he wasn't exactly neutral to this whole thing that was happening, right? Like we often think that somebody before coming to Christ and being saved by God often is, and they're neutral to this whole position. As if it's as simple as saying, well, uh, that person, if they just had the right argument given to them, then we could shift their thinking, and then they say, okay, yeah, sure, I can buy that. I'll believe in Jesus. It's not as simple as that. Although it was that for Saul, right? He, he denied Christ. He denied his work. He denied everything that was going on. But it wasn't so simple as just having the right argument for Saul to believe. It was something deeper in the recesses of his heart and what he was doing and why he was doing it. He was an enemy of Christ and the cross. He was an enemy. The language used to portray Saul in chapter 8, verse 3, when, it talks, when he says he was ravaging the church, the word used there is um, to portray Saul is likened to a wild animal or beast. Like in Psalms 80, 13, where it talks about a boar that enters a vineyard and it destroys the vineyard. But more particularly, the word is used often referring to a body that is mangled by a wild animal. 
Saul was ravaging Christ's body. He was out of control. He was hostile to this new way, to Christ and his church. Here in chapter 9, verse 1, he says what? Paul, or excuse me, Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He was still breathing this, these threats and, and uh, murder and evil. And, um, you know, maybe some of Saul's followers kind of lost a lot of their motivation in this purpose that Saul was about, you know, perhaps. Um, but not Saul. He was relentless, right? He's going after him with everything he's got. The word here for breathing is actually breathing in, interesting enough. So it, it kind of denotes that Saul was spewing out so much hate and violence against the Christians that he began to create an atmosphere around him that that's all he was taking in. He was spewing out so much evil that he could not not breathe in this hate and violence. As much as he was putting out, he was receiving himself. Not only that, but he went to great lengths to see that these new Christians were done with, right? He uh, traveled to Damascus. Damascus was 200 miles away from Jerusalem. So I did a little plotting on a map. If you went to uh, 50 and you, um, you got onto I-4, so started I-4 at 50 and went east all the way up to 95, and you went north, and you kept going, you would have to head all the way to this little town called, what's it called? I'm going to find it. Hickory Bluff, Georgia. I couldn't remember that. Hickory Bluff, Georgia. You know some good old boys are in Hickory Bluff, Georgia. <laughs> That'd be about 200 miles away, Right? Walking, it would take you 70 hours if you walked the 24 hours a day straight, so about three days. But more than likely, you'd spread that out, you know, to rest and eat, and so five to seven days. So about a week's worth of a journey to get to Damascus. And, you know, it's, we understand that this was a lot more common for people back then. People traveled by foot all the time. But Saul, really, uh, we know, didn't have any other reason to go to Damascus except to just go get rid of these people. So he went to great lengths to be able to do such a thing. And also a really interesting thing to point out is that Saul, obviously, he, he saw the women in the ministry of Jesus um, just, involved, just as involved in spreading the good news and the ministry of this word as the men because he made it a point to silence them as well. So Paul was going to make sure that every single person, every single person was done with. There would not be a single person surviving after this. And you may say, Considering all this and what Paul's state of mind is and what happened to Saul, you may say, well, Saul still could have rejected Christ, maybe. Yeah, I, I think it's a good argument, you know. But I think the question is more on this, that would Saul have still rejected Christ? Because it comes down to the will of man. Would Saul and his will have rejected Jesus the main reason I don't believe in complete free will, especially as it pertains to salvation, is because I don't believe, I believe scripture is very certain in saying that none of us in our own will, in our own accord, would come to Jesus. Just based upon our own selves would make our way to Christ. But I believe the exact opposite of that. John, in Jesus, in the Gospel of John, he says very, um, uh, uh, very directly, he says that no man can come to me unless the Father draws him. 
No man can come to me unless the Father draws him. And so we see here is a drawing of God to Christ in Saul's life. That Saul's will was not to, in his own state of mind, come to Jesus. But God, in his loving kindness, breaks this man's will and intervenes in this man's life in order to show him and to stop him. Although at times severe, God has a very kind way of bringing um, us to himself, doesn't he? It's often severe and often traumatizing. But he has a kind way of stopping us in our tracks. And when we encounter the real and unmerited grace of God, it's irresistible. When we come face to face with this, I believe it's irresistible. Do you think that Saul would have believed anyone that might have told him that he would be part of the number of the people that would be persecuted for the sake of Jesus' name? No, it's doubtful, right? It's very doubtful, but yet we see the unexpected happen here. Read with me in verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So days into the journey, Saul and his companions are struck by this light. And the risen Jesus is standing before him. So this wasn't some kind of hallucination of Saul. Right? This wasn't the ghost of Jesus. This was the risen Jesus standing before Saul. We know it was physically, he was physically there because in chapter 22, Saul says, I saw the righteous one. Jesus said in the retelling in chapter 26 of Acts that I have appeared to you for this purpose. In 1 Corinthians 15, 8, Saul tells the church that he appeared to me, meaning Christ. And light is often used in the Bible to refer to God's presence and his glory. We think about the transfiguration when Jesus walked up to the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and he was transformed before their eyes. And they say this, that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as snow. And then Jesus prayed in John 17, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And that's what happened when Jesus was ascended into heaven, right? So the disciples may have been able to bear his glory here on earth, but the risen glorified Jesus at the right hand of the Father. No man can stand in his presence and not be touched. No man comes away untouched by the risen glorified Jesus. So those, while those who were with Jesus during um, or with Saul during this time did not hear his voice they all fell to the ground prostrate and it was Saul who heard Jesus speaking to him in Hebrew Saul, Saul why are you persecuting me? chapter 26 verse 14 adds in this if you read it it is hard for you to kick against the goads we'll get to that in a second and he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So disoriented by the light and doubtless scared for his life, Saul responds with the only thing, the only reasonable question, who are you, Lord? He hears this divine voice, and this divine voice is accusing him in this moment of victimization. You persecuted me. Who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, 
I am Jesus. And on his response, Saul knew exactly the severity of his actions. That he persecuted Jesus. This fact alone didn't really mean much to Saul, right? I mean, he hated Jesus as much as he hated the church. But it was likely that Saul was there when Jesus died. If not, he was given a direct account of what happened at that event. And so to see him standing before him now is an entirely different thing altogether. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. As sudden as this all seemed to Saul, it was anything but sudden for Jesus. So in God's sovereignty that we talk about, overdrawing Saul to himself, we must see that this was not a sudden event and Jesus just said, hey, this would be a good idea. Let me step in. No. Anything but that. Saul may never have met the Godson, the Godson Jesus, but God knew Saul very well. And the great hound of heaven was chasing him down until this moment. Just as he may be chasing some of you down, even now as you sit here. That he is relentless in his pursuit. And he says these words, and Jesus says in chapter 26, verse 14, It is hard for you to kick against the goads. The goads were these long, sharp sticks used to move heavy animals along when they weren't moving, right? They would prod them and get them to go where they needed to go. So Jesus is making it very clear to Saul that I have been working and leading you to this moment. You may not have seen it, but you're here for this reason and this purpose. It's hard for you to kick against them, but you will not kick against them anymore. The goads were the miracles that Saul saw and he heard about. It was the boldness of the apostles that he saw in the thousands being drawn to the apostles. It was when Stephen was being executed and he heard Stephen's word, Father, do not hold this against them. He dismissed it and he said, that'll shut them up. But yet again, the final goad was that it did not stop. God's people continued to grow. They continued to become even more bold in their witness. And Saul was dismissing it. He was kicking against it. And Jesus was tenderly showing him, leading him. Saul, you can't deny this any longer. So he steps on the scene and he throws him to the ground. And in a blinding light, he disorients him. Don't you see that God in his kindness did not allow Saul, his, his enmity with God to be something that he would hold against Saul? But no, he steps into Saul's life in order to rescue him. Even though Saul didn't deserve this. Saul did nothing to deserve this kind of act from God, this kind of graciousness from God. Again, while you may not have had or ever will have an experience in the physicality like Saul had with Jesus, those who are born again have nothing short of the same experience spiritually. That we are all enemies of God. If God had not saved you from your sin, then you're an enemy of his because of your sin. Although your sin condemns you to eternity and separation from him, God graciously works around you to prod you, to draw you to himself. And he does this not because he needs to or he needs you, but because he takes great pleasure and delight in sharing himself with the world. God takes great delight in sharing himself with the world. 
Indeed, there is no greater gift to the world than the relationship with its creator. And when God does meet you, he does not leave you empty-handed. He gives you the greatest gift of all, his very self. He gives you all of him. There's this, a biblical term called uh, being born again, um, or the new birth. And if this is new to you, that probably sounds super strange, um, maybe even crude or vulgar. Um, it definitely did to a man named Nicodemus that Jesus was talking to. You know, Jesus said, if anyone wants to see the kingdom of God, he must be born again. And Nicodemus responds with, how can a man who is old be born again? Was he going to get back into his mother's womb? So, I mean, it's a strange concept. And if it's not new to you, it's not unlikely to that it has lost its beauty or its gravitas, that it's, it's weightiness to it. That we were once something that we are not any longer you know, I think about my kids when they were born, and I remember both of them uh, as soon as they were born and seeing them and, and their eyes open and them seeing me for the first time. And, and the, the reality shift, I don't know how much, you know, they comprehend, you know, when they're first born, but I know there's a reality shift, you know, for them to say like, oh, that's that voice, right? And how much more for their mother, you know, this, this woman who's been carrying them for nine months and nurturing them and growing them and feeding them and then all of a sudden she's holding them and they see her and they're like oh there's a reality shift this is this is reality this is what god made me for and then i watch my young daughter who's growing she's a year and a half now and she's seeing new things all the time right it's just, there's so many new things that she's experiencing, and it's, and it's beautiful to see. And, I th- and it reminds me, or it shows me, like, how much, like, I, I just know in life. How much I don't experience, like, how much newness I, I fail to give myself, right? Because um, I've, I've just learned so much. There's this illusion of knowledge that we, we, we know just enough to be know-it-alls, you know? We, we've just, we figured out enough um, you know, that no one can tell us any different because we're grown and we've experienced things and we convince ourselves that we know everything, right? Sin in the same way, it, it blinds us. Uh, in, a, in a spiritual sense, if you were to apply this, um, sin blinds us from a reality. We don't know what we don't know in a sense, right? We don't, we're lost and we don't even know it. We're blind and we, we, we don't even know that we're not even seeing Real reality. This is what sin does. It's deceptive. It, 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 points, it paints a reality for us that's not true. And so, just like a baby is born and experiences something new, when the Holy Spirit of God works God, uh, God's salvation in our lives, our eyes open to see everything from a completely different reality. But not only do we see differently, but we feel and we act differently. And we, our desires change and our thoughts change and and our actions change along with that. We're given a whole new life. So Jesus talking to Nicodemus, he, he talks about this mysteriousness of it, right? And he's like, he's like don't, don't wonder at when I say be born again. He's like, the wind is, uh, you don't know where the wind's coming from. You don't know where it's going, right? So this mysterious aspect to it, we don't understand. But First Peter, if you turn there with me, First Peter 1, near the end of your Bible. 
James, 1 Peter, and then 1, verse 3, it says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. In the um, HCSB, it says he has given us a new birth. But I like the ESV that says, it's according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. What we see in this is that it's by God's doing that this action is taking place. And the second thing, that it is through Jesus' work on the cross. It is through Jesus' work on the cross. Last passage, just to um, explain this a little bit further, is in, in, and it's to understand this, that this new birth is complete newness. Second Corinthians chapter five, Paul says to the church, from now on then we do not know anyone in, purely human, in a purely human way. Even if we have known Christ in a purely human way, yet now we no longer know him in this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away, And look, new things have come. Everything is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So there's a mysteriousness, this miraculous event that happens where we are changed from the inside out. We're given new thoughts, new desires, and it's as mysterious as knowing where the wind comes from or where it goes. Yet we see that it's necessary to have part in the kingdom of God. And how we have this is by God's doing, by his working through Jesus on the cross who gave us the ministry of reconciliation. When this is done, it is done and we are completely new. New creations. The old is done away, the new has come So Christian, you are alive and new and awakened to all that God has for you because of what he has done for you in Christ by his spirit. This is the reality that we must capture and hold on to as Christians because when we are facing trials in life, when we're just um, busy and we're just going and doing our own thing, then we get so confused and lost in life because we forget that, that this was no... I'm not meant to live this way. I've been born again. I have a new reality. I have a new life ahead of me. That's why we remind ourselves of the day that is coming. When we sing songs, that's why almost all of our songs have something about the day when we will be with Christ. Because we remind ourselves that this is not our home, that we're, we're sojourners here on this earth, venturing to our home to be with Jesus Christ. So I want to I point out... Um, Three different things. Um, eight minutes. Um, three different things um, that we pull out of here that happen to Saul and are applicable for all Christians when they are given this new birth. Okay? Everybody still with me? All right. So the first thing is this. Saul was given a new fear of the Lord. In this encounter, Saul was given a new fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord to the Christian, to the one who is in Christ, is no longer about dread or terror, right? Uh, It equates to to reverence. Now, for those outside of Christ, dread and terror are appropriate. But in Christ, there is no dread or terror. It is reverence for God and who he is. Um, 
Fear is useful to us. Uh, to there, Garen, in, um, he, he taught on the sermon uh, of Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 6, and he did a phenomenal job at uh, unpacking how fear is useful. And uh, so I encourage you to go back and, and listen to that. It's on our website. I'm not going to unpack it here, but, um, but for, for the sake of fear, I do want to point out a couple things. And um, my son often asked me, I don't know why he asked me all this time, uh, this all the time, but he, uh, he says, Dad, is that animal bad? I'm like, no, buddy. That, there's, there's no such thing as a bad animal. God doesn't make bad things. That animal is dangerous. That animal will hurt you. It might even kill you. But that animal is not bad. You know, oftentimes we, we see um, things that we fear and we equate them to evil, right? But not everything that we fear is evil. Fear is useful to us. It, it actually keeps us from danger. God uses fear to bring his children back into a place where they ought to be in obedience with him. So fear is useful. It's used all the time. And in verse 31, if you go back with me to our passage in, um, in Acts 9, at the very end, in verse 31, uh, it says this, that the church had peace. So in Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So this word fear here um, is also used in a lot of different places in the Bible. Um, one uh, was in, in Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, Mary Magdalene and the mother of Jesus, Mary, when they were coming from the tomb and it was empty, uh, it says that they were filled with fear and great joy. That was kind of an odd thing to put together, right? That they were filled with fear and great joy because of this miraculous event that happened. There was this awe and reverence for, we don't know what's happening here, but it's, it's other than, and yet they're filled with a joy because of it, right? Um, also, I mentioned Ananias and Sapphira when, um, when, they, were, um, when they withheld uh, the money from the church and they were dishonest and they both died. Uh, it says that great fear fell among the whole church, right? God used that to keep his church. Um, the point here is that an appropriate fear this is what Saul experienced, an appropriate fear of the Lord. An appropriate fear of the Lord is always with Christ in full view. You cannot have an appropriate fear of God if you cannot see Christ in the picture. And you have to have him in full view. And this type of fear with Christ in the picture does not drive us from God, but it drives us to God. That's the difference. If there's no Christ, if there's no sacrifice, if we have not been reconciled to God our Father, then we must dread and we must be in terror of this God. It is due Him. But with Christ in the picture, what Christ has done has brought us to the Father and it draws us to Him. Andrew Peterson, he's one of my favorite um, songwriters. He, he writes this. It's so simple, yet so poignant. He says, Mighty God, how I fear you. Oh, how I long to be near you. I think that's such a, a great understanding. That, oh God, you are mighty and other than, but yet I long to be with you. I long to be near you. It drew Paul 
and his experience with Christ, seeing that how his persecution of disciples equated to his persecution of Jesus did not draw him away from Jesus. But in a moment, he saw what Jesus did was real. He is alive. And it drew him to him. See how it directly resulted in Paul or Saul fasting and praying, right? It says that in verse 9, he neither ate nor drank. Um, and then we learn a couple verses later in verse 11 that it was actually because he was praying, Jesus said. The direct result from this event was Saul going and praying to God and fasting and removing himself from all things. And a fear of the Lord resulting in holiness is a marker of the new birth. A fear of the Lord that results in holiness is a marker of the new birth where you are driven to God and not away from him. When you're driven to obedience to him and his word. Are you driven to prayer, church? Are you driven to finding God in his word? Are you driven to um, the temporary denial of good things in your life so that you might have the better things that God wants for you? Are you driven to those things because you are driven to God? It's a marker of the new birth. And I'll tell you this, you have to be purposeful, right? You have to be purposeful. Because, you know, the, the, this, this life is, is busy. Um, and I know I'm not the busiest person on the planet, um, but I feel like it sometimes. And I just feel like I just got no time. And if I don't fight for time, then it's non-existent. It's just the, the phase of my life right now with the two young kids and, and uh, working a full-time job and being a pastor at this church and, and different responsibilities. Like, if I don't fight for that time, then it doesn't happen. My flesh is weak. And so I have to order myself. I have to order my morning. Scott was so gracious to, to me when we were meeting me, Ryan, and Scott and, and early in the morning one day and I was talking about how it's just difficult for me. It's just hard for me to, to, to want this right now, to, to get up and prioritize this time in my life. And Scott was like, he's like, you can't, you can't just start by just having a cup of coffee and thinking. No, you have to order your thoughts. There's, there's purpose. There, you have to be purposeful and intentional with it. And that was a gracious thing, Scott, you know, for you to remind me of. And it's true. Because without it, we, we, we just drift. And we just end up doing whatever, we end up being wherever we end up. But without purpose and intentionality, with intention and purpose, uh, intentionality and purpose, we will stay in line and we'll be drawing to God. The second thing that Paul was given um, was a new community. He was given a new community. Verse 17 of chapter 9 says this. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. The people that Saul persecuted became his family. 
What an amazing event. The people that he persecuted became his family. I think one of the most just profound things that are said in this whole passage, maybe even the whole book, is Ananias coming to Saul and he says, Brother Saul, the first Christian that this man ever interacted with that we know of, apart from him persecuting the Christians, was Ananias coming. He lay in his hands upon him and he says, Brother Saul, Brother A commitment to Jesus' body, church, is another marker of the new birth. A commitment to each other. 1 John 4, 7, John tells us that love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God. In a world that has become more and more polarized, there is such a desperate need for our love for each other to be radical. The definition of radical is this, I love this, affecting the fundamental nature of something. It's radical. Ananias' obedience to the Lord to love Saul, despite his wickedness, and even in the face of Ananias' own fear of Saul, was the radical work that shifted the fundamental nature of this man. And I believe that wholeheartedly. Consider, if Ananias had not gone to Saul, would Saul have ever become part of the disciples in Damascus or Jerusalem? Would he still have ended up being a part of the local church? You can make an argument to say no. I believe more and more that what God is leading his church towards is what he's always led his church towards. It's a radical hospitality. It's a radical love for each other. Third thing is a new mission a new fear of the Lord, a new community, and a new mission. Verse 15. Verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Like a master in the school of music and instruments, God carefully chooses one to carry the melody while another to support with the harmony and building one upon the other, he creates a symphony of music to showcase his great and marvelous works to the world. This is his church, and this is how he's chosen to be. Uh, this is, he's chosen her to be this uh, symphonic vehicle of good news to the world. Saul was one instrument chosen by God. I'm another instrument. You, Christian, are another instrument chosen by God to display his marvelous works to the world, to sing a song that is greater than any other. Jesus said to Saul in chapter 26 again, and this in verse 16, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen and what I will reveal to you. Not much different than you and I's call to be a witness to what we have seen God do in our lives and what God is going to reveal to us in the days ahead. And what does it mean to be a witness? The two things that Saul set out to do as soon as he he left, he, he preached these two things. He said that Jesus is the Son of God and Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Lord, Jesus is the Savior. It's our message today. The reality of what God has called Saul to was dangerous. Okay? This was at the cost of risking his own life. He fled twice from Damascus then to Jerusalem 
and then from Jerusalem, um, he fled to, uh, forget the name of the city. Um, he had to flee again because people were, were trying to kill him because of what he was preaching. The reality is, is it was dangerous. And the reality is that what God has called you to, Christian, it might be that dangerous. It just might be. Have you counted the cost and will you go regardless? That's the message for us in that. Through this, Paul was able to say to the Philippian church, my eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now as always, with all boldness, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, living is Christ and dying is gain. Boldness in the face of persecution and losing everything is a marker of the new birth. A new fear of the Lord, a new community, a new mission. If you've been around Crosspoint for a little bit while, a little while now, you know, this kind of relates pretty well with our mission statement here, that to love God, to love others, to live on mission. That's purposeful. Because for every believer, this is our call. How do you love God with everything that you have? How do you have a fear of the Lord that causes you not to draw away from him, but to love him, to draw near to him? It's through Christ. It's through reminding yourself. And let me tell you, church, that the main means of reminding yourself scripturally and through all history has been the church. It's been each other. It's been one another to encourage and admonish and to tell each other, hey, Brother, sister, remind yourself. Be reminded. This is our duty to one another. And then from that, to live on mission, to encourage each other to go out to this new mission that we have been given. So who are you this morning? And we'll wrap up here in a sec. Who are you this morning? The headstrong man or woman convinced in his or own pursuits? persecuting Jesus and you didn't even know it, reckless when you thought you were being so thoughtful, breathing in destruction because it's all you can dish out? Have you convinced yourself that God doesn't exist because you refuse to see how he is tenderly, kindly, yet persistently drawing you to himself? Have you considered why you are here even this morning? Could it be because God is encountering you in this moment? Or are you the faithful, you're the God-fearing man or woman? You want to be used by God, but feeling like you don't have the time because of kids, because of work, you have endless amounts of things to do on your list, and you know that God could never use you to reach the nations because you're not wise enough, you're not eloquent enough, you're not skilled enough. And you know, church, that Ananias, the only thing we know about this man He was never mentioned again. The only thing we know about this man is that he was a devout man according to the law and well spoken of by the Jews in his his community. It's the only thing we know about him. It's probable that he wasn't even trained in the law like, like Paul was, right? He wasn't on Saul's intellectual level. Yet God chose him to bring Saul to become one of the greatest missionaries of all time and to know Jesus. And the final verse here, we already mentioned walking in the fear of the Lord. Verse 31, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it, the church, multiplied. The gospel advanced. If 
fear of the Lord plus comfort of the Spirit, advancement in the gospel. Where do you find comfort? Where do you find comfort this morning? There are harsh warnings to those who find comfort in the things of this world. Jesus said to, uh, to, this, uh, to the crowd, he said, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and they revile you and they spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, Christian. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But then here's his warning. But woe to you who are rich. For you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Where is your comfort in life? It doesn't mean, what Jesus means here, it doesn't um, mean that just because you have a lot of money that you're, you're damned for hell. It means that you put a lot of stock in your wealth. Right? You put a lot of comfort in what you have You're full now. You're comforted now in the things that you have. But the church multiplied because they feared God and they refused to put comfort in these things. They were comforted by nothing else than the Holy Spirit. He is our great comforter. He is our helper. He's the one that Jesus said will be sent in my name and he will teach you all things to bring you to remembrance all that I have said to you. Throughout the apostles' letters to the churches, they remind the church of who they were and what they are now. And you come on Sundays, we get here together to be reminded of this comforting news together. And church has always been the primary means of this gospel, uh, this grace being applied. So it comes full circle. Our mission is influenced by our fear of the Lord and deepened by our community. And seeing God move in our community and our and in our mission stimulates our fear of him and our reverence for Jesus. We revere him not just as abstract, but as a savior and as a king. And I, we're gonna sing this song and, and I just believe this is just the appropriate response to, to all that God has done um, for us and in our lives. And it is this, that God has been the faithful one to lead us to this point and will be the faithful one to always lead us on. And so may we respond to him um, because he is that good God. He is that good God that's been faithful to us. We're gonna sing this one song and, and then that'll be it. And we'll take communion. Um, but uh, I wanna invite you to stand. Let's join together in this.